Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Scream if you like ribs. Whistle if you like chicken wings. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Holoquy explained that each of us must understand one simple thing. Man Khubam. I am good. ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. And then he said if we wanted to know more about being good, we should buy his CDs, which were on sale in the lobby. Today, two stories from Third Coast's radio residency alumni. A mother and a daughter take to the water to repair their relationship, and a look back at an iconic Chicago grocery store. There are any pressures on me besides the pressure to be as creative as I want to be. And I just feel like I have tremendous support to do exactly what I want to do, uh, whatever shape that takes, which feels really good. One of Third Coast's missions is to bring new work into the world. Original stories, well-told and beautiful to listen to from diverse voices. One of the ways we do this is by inviting producers with promising voices to spend a week at Ragdale, an artist colony in Lake Forest, Illinois. Hi, my name is Cher Vincent, and I am a producer from Chicago. Cher Vincent was a Third Coast radio resident in 2016. Since then, she's been working as a freelancer and recently produced a story for The Nod, a podcast in which hosts Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings explore the beautiful, complicated dimensions of being Black. In this episode, Cher investigates a beloved local Chicago market. Here's Brittany, Eric, and Cher. Hi, my name is Cher Vincent, and I am a producer from Chicago. Welcome, Cher. Welcome. Thank you. Chi-town. Coming home again. Just like Kanye, right? <laughs> Chicago. Get it? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk to you guys about this beloved grocery store. For a long time, this place was a huge part of Black life in Chicago. For me and lots of folks like me, it was called Moo and Oink. Moo, Moo and, and Oink. Oink. Yes, it was around when I was a kid, and it was a Black institution. They had four locations in predominantly Black neighborhoods. Uh-huh. My family always went to the Moo and Oink at the corner of 71st and Stony Island. And folks there knew our names. They were like, oh, the Vincents are here? Let's get these packets ready for y'all. Aw. We would go there every Sunday, usually to get a big bag of chicken wings and veggies. Mm. It was hard to get fresh food on the South Side, but Emma and Oink, you could. We were on food stamps at the time, and when we went there, they served us with respect and a smile. But the thing Moo and Oink was most known for was its TV commercial, mostly because it was the closest thing you could get to being a viral video. So it was high quality. 
<laughs> as far as content, yes. Um, as far as, like, catchiness, absolutely. Like, it's an earworm. And it was made in 1982. And visually, it's something to behold. Uh, the commercial has this massive costumed cow and pig dancing the same choreography as these little kids in these really funny 1980s sweaters dancing around in aisles in this grocery store. People are waving. People are dancing. People are having the best time in their life. And you just have to experience this commercial for yourself. Wait, you have the commercial? YouTube. Got this dude smiling, packing chicken wings to a bag. Somebody did a high kick. Give me a wave if you like catfish. Jump up if it's your favorite dish. It is my favorite dish. This is so beautiful. There's people dancing in the aisle and at the cashier. (laughs) This is not a real thing. It is 30 seconds of perfection. Oh my god. So wait. All, all due respect. All due oh respect God. to lift every voice and sing. How has this not become the Black National Anthem? The deep question. They said, they said jump if catfish is your favorite dish. Yo, it really is, though. Uh, I loved this. It was such a cultural touchstone, not just for my childhood, but for so many people in Chicago, um, to the point where, like, SNL spoofed it. Have you guys ever even been to the South Side? I buy all my meats on the south side, right? Moo and oink. Moo, moo, moo and oink. It is just a huge Chicago thing. Everyone knows about moo and oink, mostly because of these commercials are so catchy. Like, yeah. I already you're humming say it. it in your head right now. I bet yeah. you are. I was like, moo and oink. Yeah, so the commercials left their mark on the city. I remember feeling like many of the Chicago commercials for local businesses were geared toward a white audience. But the Moonlight commercials seemed to be catered to a Black audience. Mm. It seemed to be catered to me. But mostly, it was just a really great grocery store. They had, you know, one of the few places in the city where you can get legit chitlins Mm. by the bucket. Nice. That's the only way it should come. Yes, exactly. So they were known for their hot links, which were fire. Mm. They were super crunchy and juicy. And they were made with these special Moon Oink spices. My dad used to get them for summer cookouts, and I basically lived off of their chicken tenders in high school. You loved yourself. (laughs) Truly. And it was one of the few places in the city where you could get fresh food using WIC or food stamps and get bang for your buck, at least in the 90s when I was growing up. Yeah. And it was a tradition of it all, especially on Sundays. You go to church, you go to Moon Oink, Mm. and, and, you know, you make your dinner. Sadly, though, roughly six years ago, they all closed down. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. R.I.P. Moon Oink, the store. But in 2011, a group actually came in and bought the brand and all of Moon Oink's recipes. And that's when I saw the news that for the first time, Moon Oink was owned by a black family. Wait. Whoa. Yeah, that's what? right. This store, so closely associated with black people in Chicago, so closely associated with my childhood in Chicago, had been run by a white family all this time. So wait, so... All this time. Because in the commercial, they had the older black couple, they were hugging, I think it was either a head of cabbage or a bundle of collard greens. <laughs> they smiled at the camera and I was like, oh, that must be the people that own this. Yeah. 
So the whole time it had been owned by a white family. And they called it Moo and Oink. And they put them in the hood. Yep. Because you would think just like the commercial is so black. And it's very good. Yeah. Like he's like, the guy is like smiling with the chicken, putting the chicken wigs in the bag. Like, I'm like, I want to be that guy's friend. Yeah. Did did everybody know this? No. Like, Moo and Oink was basically synonymous with Black Chicago for over 35 years. I imagine the owner being a Steve Harvey type, but once I found out he wasn't, I wanted to know who was actually behind the company and this iconic commercial. I mean, the thing about the commercial, the commercials, like, it's, it it doesn't feel inauthentic. That's yeah. the, that's the way to describe it. Exactly. It does not feel inauthentic. Exactly. And that was by design. That was the one thing that I always strived for was the homemade look. I didn't want to be Madison Avenue. I wanted it to be homemade because I wanted the employees and the neighborhood to shine. Okay, so that's Barry Levy. He's one of the original owners of Moo and Oink. And he wanted the neighborhood to shine because he actually seemed to care about the neighborhood. Mm. Barry is a small man with a big smile. He shook my hand as soon as I walked into the door of my studio. He carried this massive box that was almost as big as him, and it was filled with just memories. Wait, no hot links, though. <laughs> no hot links, I know. Mm. Like No wings? <laughs> I honestly was just, like, so amazed by all of the memorabilia that I forgot to ask about the food. So maybe that's on me. <laughs> oh, man, you gave me... There's so many shirts. <laughs> oh, man. That's great. So, what are the significance of these shirts? Did you guys have a softball team? We did. The only time we had a softball team was during company picnics. Oh, yeah? It was a very competitive activity at the picnics. Barry has a real affection when he talks about Moo and Oink, his customers, and his employees, who are predominantly from the neighborhood. He's a lifelong South Sider. And hearing him talk about it, you get a sense he thought of them as family. We flew through the box for a bit, but that's not what you're here for. That's right. That's true. That's not what I'm here for. I had one thing and one thing only I wanted to know from Barry. How did he make the blackest commercial I've ever seen? <laughs> yes. Let's get to how the sausage was made. Because it's sausage. Get it? Share, please. <laughs> oh, no. Share, please. That's Next where you part laugh. Of the story, please. <laughs> Turns out, Barry had a lot of help. That makes sense. He produced everything from behind the camera, but much of the creative contribution actually came from his employees, most of whom were from the neighborhood. Like, take those iconic lyrics. They were actually written by a Black woman, Barry's secretary, who was an aspiring poet. Lillian Bassett, my very first secretary, she liked to dabble with poems. So she started a little poem about wave for catfish, you know, Tommy likes ribs and chicken wings. Where can I get her mixtape? <laughs> I know. It is, it's, it's pretty fire. And if you look real close, you can actually see Liam Bassett in the commercial. She's one of the women who um, you see standing by the register. She's the one wearing glasses. And it didn't stop there. Another employee helped with the music, giving you that earworm of a hook. And then, of course, there was the dancing. There was Lindsay that had a dance 
studio in the neighborhood, and he choreographed what they were going to do. And the people who were in the costumes were just as interesting. There were a couple guys that we used. You know, one was a magician part-time. Those pig and cow costumes, Barry told me those cost $10,000. That is so much money. <laughs> that is so much money really for is, costumes. <laughs> they were custom-made. Wait, they were custom-made? Custom-made. That almost justifies the price. <laughs> <laughs> and they were huge. The cow costume was eight feet tall. Amazing. So after getting his secretary to write the script, employees to make the music, and extras from the neighborhood a star, Barry's first stint directing a commercial was complete. And from its launch, the commercial was a hit. Hit undersells it, in my opinion. <laughs> More like perfection on film. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And it wasn't only the commercial that was a hit. The store was blowing up, too. We got so busy, we hired from people in the crowd waiting for service. <laughs> you want to help us? How'd you like to help us? You know, okay. And I pay them for the day. Would you like to work here? That is actually where we got our workforce. At the end, we had over 400 employees and I would say that 90% of them came from the community. Moen Oink became a big part of the community, and Barry made sure he wasn't just profiting on the neighborhood. He also made a point to put some money back into it. I mean, he donated food to the neighborhood block parties and local street festivals. There was this big parade that happens every year on the South Side around the time kids go back to school. And Moen Oink always gave away food free of charge, to thousands of participants and parade-goers. And, of course, there was no escaping those classic Moon Oink lyrics from the commercial. We yeah, made signs up. Wave if you like catfish. Scream if you like ribs. Whistle if you like chicken wings. Clap if, you know. And people would start whistling or clapping or whatever. It was a tremendous uh, response. So obviously, the commercial was a big deal, and it ran for decades, well into the 2000s. And it was the same commercial that was made in 1982. That is wild. That is wild. And then in 2004, after years of running on local Chicago TV, the commercial got some national love. When Barry entered it into a competitive, creative advertising contest. I mean, there's over a thousand people at the convention, and... They get to the end of the ceremony, giving out the awards, and now they're going to give out the best of show. And, you know, I'm sitting there. I just close my eyes when they they announced the winner, and it was moving on, and wow. Yeah. It must have been so different, homemade, because it was homemade. Barry sounds so proud. It's so funny, though, that, like, as amazing as this commercial was, like, you know, that's when it finally gets the respect that it deserves. Right? It was a really nice note to end on because it was just a few years later that Moon Oink closed its doors for good. 
Wait, so you said that, like, eventually it was owned by a black family. Yes. So How did that happen? This black family, the Beavers, they bought the rights to the Moon Oink name and all of Moon Oink's recipes. You can still buy the products in stores across the Midwest, but the Moon Oink, as I knew it, the brick-and-mortar store I spent so many Sundays at as a young girl, that Moon Oink was basically over. Pouring out for Moon Oink. Pouring out for Moon Oink. Should we collect money to buy back Moon Oink? You know, a question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what the Beavers' intentions are. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I was ready to start pledge drive. As an alternative, though, mm. if we don't end up buying Moon Oink, if, if, sure, um, sure, sure. maybe we should become commercial consultants. Yo, <laughs> I have ideas. Cause um, yo, that 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 has given me vision. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Moo and Oink was produced by Cher Vincent for the Nod from Gimlet Media. I don't like to be documented under any circumstances. I don't even like to have my picture taken. Coming up after the break, you are good. I am good. We are all good, good, good. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. At Third Coast, we are constantly listening to podcasts, radio shows, everything we can get our ears on. And of all the stuff we hear, we share the very best with you. Today, we're featuring stories by alumni from our Third Coast Radio Residency. The Third Coast Radio Residency is a week-long retreat for diverse voices in the radio community. Sharon Mashihi spent her week at the Ragdale Arts Community working on the story you're about to hear. It's one of those stories that's been bubbling at the surface for years, just waiting to come out. Fortunately for us, Sharon was able to give it to us in an intriguing, kooky, funny, smart, and devastating way, all at the same time. Here is Men Khubam. I am good. My mother does not want me to make this radio story. She doesn't want anyone to hear her voice or to judge her for her accent. Just for the record, who are you? I'm Sharon Mashihi's mommy. Do you have a name? Did you forget my name? <laughs> Why don't you refresh my memory? What's your name? My name is Nahid Mashihi. Great. 
And why don't you start by telling me? And if my mother knew the details about myself I planned to share in this radio story, she would especially not want me to make it. And she certainly wouldn't want you to listen. This is the crux of our conflict as mother and daughter. I want to expose everything, and she wants to hide it all away. I don't like to be documented under any circumstances. I don't even like to have my picture taken. I feel like you don't even like to talk to anybody because you don't want them to remember the things that you said. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I convinced my mother to let me record her by insisting that the story isn't really about her. It's about her guru, a guy named Dr. Holoquy. But let's face it, the story is about my mom and me. It's about our relationship. We, we both are from two different sides of the spectrum. So close, yet so far. I know. Dr. Holoquy is my excuse. But before I explain the phenomenon that is my mother's guru, Dr. Holoquy, and how he came into our lives... Let me start at the beginning. In Tehran, Iran's capital city, two decades before the revolution, a baby was born. Her name was Nahid, Farsi for Venus. Venus, the goddess of love, sex, beauty, and fertility. If the young Nahid grew up thinking about love, sex, beauty, or fertility, she certainly couldn't have said so to her parents. Nahid's father was a very strict man, and his children were afraid of him. When he got home at night, he expected everything to be in order, for the table to be set, and for his glass of water to be waiting for him. Otherwise, he used to get very angry that why everything is not uh, the way it's supposed to be when I arrive at home. Like, a general just stepped into the house. When Nahid was 17 years old, she came to the United States to go to college. A year later, the revolution broke out in Iran. Her parents fled their home to join her. They thought their stay in America would be temporary, but it wasn't. Nahid met my father, Victor, at a wedding in Queens. They danced to a couple of songs, and he proposed to her that night. Make my Three years later, I was born. My parents moved our young family to a town called Great Neck, New York, where they could be around other Iranian Jews like themselves. The community was tight. Everybody was in everybody's business. And there were rules. 
Rule number one. Women must straighten their hair and have manicures and pedicures at all times. Rule number two. Always appear to be as rich as you possibly can. Three. You must drive a Mercedes. If you're broke, you may drive an old broken down Mercedes. Four. Never admit to weakness. If you have cancer, tell no one. If you're unhappy, smile. Do not, under any circumstances, humiliate your family by going to a therapist and incurring the stigma of mental illness. Five, if you're bookish, you must become a doctor or a lawyer. Six, if you're less bookish, you may go into real estate or sell antique rugs. And rule number seven, no boyfriends, no girlfriends. Dating is only for the purposes of marriage. You might ask, how do you end up marrying somebody if they weren't your boyfriend or girlfriend first? The answer is, go to your room and stop asking questions. In Great Neck, the community wasn't very accepting of those who broke the rules. Lucky for my family and me, we were obedient as hell. That said, I don't think my mother ever felt like she totally fit in. For most of my childhood, my mother didn't have friends. I used to hear her tell other adults that I was her best friend. And I felt pride in that. We used to watch Oprah together in the afternoons and go to the supermarket together on the weekends. She'd confide in me about my younger siblings and her relationship with my dad. One day, my mom was straightening my hair, and I started to sing in a fake language, which was something I loved to do. On that day, I was really getting into it, jamming to the beat of the blow dryer. But my mother took one look at me and said, Khafe. Khafe is the Persian term for shut up, but it literally translates to choke. I didn't take Khafe to mean that my mother actually wanted me to choke. Farsi is a dramatic language. But I did take it to mean that she had no patience for the weirdest parts of me, which was unfortunate because. I planned to cultivate my weirdness for the rest of my life. And as I got older, I heard the word khafe more and more. Khafe! And I started to break the rules. In particular, rule number one, straight hair, manicures, pedicures. And rule number four, if you're unhappy, smile. In fact, I was very unhappy. When I was 18 years old, I violated number four, Carlary A., do not, under any circumstances, humiliate your family by going to a therapist. It feels a little bit like time travel for me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Me too. The other day, I went back to visit my old therapist, a guy named Glenn Berger. He's a gestalt specialist. Very basically, do you remember when I started coming to see you? I do remember that, uh, I know this is going to get on the radio, but I'll say Anyway, but I do remember that your parents were crazy. I felt maybe he's making you to be more different than you were. You wanted so much distance from us. Why did you think you need to talk to a therapist? My reasons for seeing a therapist were complicated. At the time, I just knew that I was sad. Looking back, I think I needed an adult in my life who could tell me that my life was mine and that I wasn't required to adjust myself to appease anyone else. You were very independent. Very independent. 
In the years AT, after therapy, I realized I needed space from my mom. As long as she and I were close, I found it difficult to be my full self. So my mom and I hung out less and less, and I grew into the adult I am today. A neurotic free spirit with a total unwillingness to compromise. My mother would want me to be well-dressed and feminine in an old-school way. Most of my clothes are secondhand. I wear my hair in a messy bun at the apex of my scalp with Medusa-like curls coming down toward my face. And I don't shave my armpits. She would want me to live in a nice, clean house with a husband and a child. I live in a four-story hippie house with a ragtag crew of artists and queers. She would want me to attend Iranian Jewish formal functions, where I might meet the right kind of man. I spend most of my evenings holed up in someone's bedroom, toiling away at art projects that might never see the light of day. When I was a kid, I used to memorize every detail of my day, just so I could repeat it all back to my mom when I got home. I wanted to include her in everything. When I tell my mom about my life now, she gets upset, so I say nothing. I don't tell my mother about my work. I don't tell her about how I spend my time or who my friends are. And most importantly, I don't tell her anything about my boyfriend, Thatcher. Remember rule number seven? It still applies when you're 33. My mom would consider Thatcher to be a nightmare. He's 18 years older than I am, divorced with a teenage son, broke, not Jewish, not Persian, and not, I repeat, not expensive looking. My mother is often begging me to visit more, and I would love to hang out with her. I like her. But I don't hang out with her because it's kind of unbearable to constantly report back that I did nothing yesterday and nothing last week, and I have nothing planned for tomorrow. When in fact, I have a very busy, interesting life full of activities that I do with my boyfriend. I had given up all hope that being honest with my mom would ever be possible until she started listening to Dr. Holoquy. Dr. Holoquy is an Iranian therapist with his own call in radio show. A therapist. His show is about people calling. They have problems. They discuss it with him. He tries to help them or open their eyes. My mom discovered Dr. Holoquy on the internet. I came across uh, his name and then uh, for a few days I was just listening to different radio shows. So you mean you binge-listened the moment you discovered him? Mm, Yeah. Dr. Holoquy is really famous. He's stationed in L.A., but people tune in from all over the world, including small towns in Iran. Dr. Holoquy also hosts seminars, writes books, and produces psychology albums. He has eight discs alone on the subject of depression. It's been three years since my mother discovered Dr. Holoquy. And she still listens to him while eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whenever she's in the car, when she's at the gym, and even when she's in the shower. I don't know. He can pinpoint things. He can read your mind with two, three sentences. He can diagnose you. Want to know the big lesson my mom has learned that has transformed her life? Don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat over small stuff. 
And before that, you feel like you were sweating over small stuff. I think still I do, but but I'm more aware of it. And I know I'm not alone. What is happening is not just me that's happening to. There is a whole other groups that they are going through the same thing. This is the thing about Dr. Holoquy. Most of the people in my mom's community are so concerned with appearances that no one ever seems to admit to having problems. Listening to him, my mom can easily see that it's possible to be Iranian and human at the same time, that having problems is normal. Several times a year, Dr. Holoquy takes his followers on a four-day cruise that sails the Pacific. When I found out about it, I thought, that's perfect. I like therapy. Now my mom likes therapy. Maybe we can go on the cruise and bond over that. I wanted to ask about the Dr. Holoquy cruise in February 2017. I shelled out $1,300 and got us two tickets. Your mom's first name? Nahid, N-A-H-I-D. I know, because my name is Nahid, too. It is? Yeah. That's funny. Okay. Hi, Nahid. Hi. And then her birthday? When I hung up the phone, I was excited. The cruise would be the perfect setting to sit down with my mom and tell her I have a boyfriend, to invite her back into my life in a real and intimate way. The only thing standing between me and doing that was chutzpah, of which I have actually very little. Okay, so it's the morning that my mother and I are leaving for L.A. Our journey begins. Yes, it certainly is about to begin. I have anxiety for the next 10 days. Already I woke up with a headache. So let's see what happens in the future. What are you anxious about? Being in a very small, confined area with you. At the airport, my mother and I whisper to each other, trying to guess who among our fellow travelers is also Iranian, who among us also eats onions at the dinner table like they're apples. On the plane, my mom whipped out four Tupperware containers full of Persian food, kebab and radishes, herbs and pickles, rice. To the untrained nostril, Persian food reeks. As we ate, I noticed the woman next to us squirm her body further and further toward the window while she quietly ate an apple. I mean, a real apple, not an onion. The rest of the ride, my mom and I talked about the little things we've each learned from therapists. I told her about the Oedipal complex, and she listed all the people in her life who seemed to suffer from clinical narcissism. We landed in the Holy Land, Tarangeles, as we call it a city so full of our kind that our Uber driver was one of us. National Public Radio. This is Edward. My mom is trying to explain to him that I work in public radio. When we tell him that we're in L.A. to go see Dr. Holoquy, Edward gives us his opinion. Uh, I think he's playing with people's minds. You think so? Yeah. He seems so genuine to me. He's sort of half-baked genuine. Yeah, yes. The next day, my mother and I called another Uber. 7RH. That Uber driver was one of us, too. He spotted us as soon as we entered the car. You guys Persian, huh? Yes. Salam. 
On the third day of our trip, the day we would embark on the cruise, we took another Uber. So this is all of it? This is Mohammed. Here, Mohammed is saying, I saw Dr. Halakwi once in Westwood. I just saw him on the street, walking. Then Mohammed said, this one's for you, and switched the music in the car to Titanic. Thank you, that's nice. <laughs> Although that's probably not the best music for us to be listening to as we're about to go on a ship. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Two bags? Two bags to oh, yes. Perfect. Mashihi. M-A-S-H-I-H-I. Approaching the line to enter the boat, I felt immediately self-conscious. We were surrounded by 2,000 Iranians. It was a total fashion show. Everyone had their hair perfectly coiffed and wore designer sunglasses, and all the women had full makeup on. I was wearing my most expensive outfit. My skirt cost $200, but somehow it still didn't match up. At one point, a woman on the line, a total stranger, commented on the fact that I wasn't wearing lipstick. She looked at my mother sympathetically and said, I know how you feel. I also have a daughter who's plain. When we got to our cabin, my mother handed me a razor. She didn't even need to say it. I knew what it was for. I went into the bathroom and shaved my armpits. That night, we both had trouble sleeping. Me, because I was gearing up for the big talk. Her, because she's my mom. And for better or worse, when I'm unhappy, she feels it. The next morning, we went to Holoquy's seminar. The subject was self-esteem and happiness. This would be my first glimpse of the man himself. My mom and I entered the Paris lounge, a room with dark red velvet seats and a stage. We sat toward the front so I could get a better recording. When Holoquy came on stage, I had one thought. He looks exactly like my grandfather. I speak Farsi, but not that well. All I know is that every couple of minutes, the audience would burst into raucous laughter. <laughs> and that my mom kept nodding her head and whispering in my ear, Do you understand? He's a brilliant joke teller. <laughs> the part I could understand was this. Halakwi explained that Iranians, like a lot of people, are plagued by low self-esteem. To turn that around... Each of us must understand one simple thing. Then he pounded his fist to his chest and said, Man Khubam. I am good. I am good, he said. And I am lovable. 98% of people, he said, 98% of the time, 
are just doing the best they can. If I do 100 things right and do three things that are idiotic, I'm not an idiot. I am good. Why do I feel good? Because I'm good. And how do I know that? Because I'm good. And how did I get here? Because I'm good. And then he said if we wanted to know more about being good, we should buy his CDs and DVDs, which were on sale in the lobby. After the seminar, my mom made a friend, and they decided to disembark from the ship together to take a walk in Mexico. I used the opportunity to mentally prepare myself for the big talk. Every summer, my friends and I go to the Delaware River, and every year, it's the same. Even though I love the water, I'm afraid to actually get into it. So I use tactics. I sing. The singing helps me distract myself. I wet my hair to trick my body into thinking I am already underwater. I look down into the water and try to imagine my body in it. I look up at the sky and try to picture my body sinking down backwards into the water. I do all of these things over and over again. Sing to help distract myself, wet my hair to trick my body into thinking I am already under the water. Look down at the water and try to imagine my body in it. Look up at the sky and try to imagine my body sinking down. 30 minutes go by. 45 minutes go by. I... I'm only knee-deep. Sing to help distract myself, wet my hair to trick my body into thinking I am already under the water, look down I drive myself crazy, I lose touch with reality completely, when all of a sudden I realize... I am already in the water, my body fully submerged. I am in the river, and I'm swimming, and I fucking love it. Sitting in the cabin, I thought, if it has taken me this long, my entire adulthood, to have an honest conversation with my mom, what makes me think that that conversation will happen today? Then, before I even noticed her enter, my mother was in the room. There's a Q&A at 7 o'clock, she said. Do you want to go? I said, I want to ask him about how I struggle a lot with the cultural differences between us. I love you very much, but it feels like I really can't share any of my life with you and that I have to keep things secret, and that really hurts me. And immediately she cut me off and said, well, as soon as you say that, everyone is just going to think that you're gay. And I was like, well, I'm not gay. And so what if I was? Maybe I'll be gay later when I'm older. And she was like, I don't want you to ask that. You can't ask that. You're not allowed to ask that. She was like, what about me? You brought me onto this boat, this place where I can't escape? You can't torture me here. I was like, but can I talk to you about some of these things? And my heart is just like racing because there has been so much time building up to this conversation. 
I tell myself over and over again, man, khubam. I am good. I've been thinking about this. I mean, I want to be so out loud myself. Anybody I meet, I tell them my whole life story. I don't care at all. I'll tell on a stage to 2,000 people. I'll tell them my biggest, deepest, darkest thing. And then with you guys, it feels like I keep most of my life secret from you. And it feels like I'm not welcome to share my life with you. And so it makes it so that I constantly have this thing where you're my family, you're the most important people in my life, and it feels like you don't know me. I feel like there's this big block in my life, which is, you know, I can't help it. Like, I turned out, and I might cry a little, I'm sorry, but, like, I turned out to be different, and it's just who I am. So it's very... It's very hard. Like, I can't change that. I'm not trying to hurt you ever, 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 ever. But I have to be myself. Like, I have to... Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't have control. I, I know you think that I have control. But I don't have control over my life in that way to... To change myself. And, like, I'm... I'm a good person and I'm not in danger and I'm not fucking up. I'm like... I'm just fine. I'm just a little bit different from you guys. I know. I'm sorry. I know it's hard for you. I'm going to throw myself into the ocean because of you. That's not fair. What do you mean that's not fair? I'm not trying to hurt you at all. I'm like, the thing that I... I know. Why do you want to put me in position... That I'm not comfortable with, you know? You can't force me to do something and I don't want to do. You, you can't force me to accept something that I cannot accept. I don't want to force you to do anything. I would never force you. You are, you are yourself and you're entitled to all of your opinions. Yeah, but you have to think. You have to think in the long run. You cannot think of something for the next two, three years. That may feel okay. How about the rest of your life? If you want to have a kid, if you want to have these things, it's time to act. You don't have time to waste the year. I know, but I'm not... You don't have time to waste the year. I know, but I'm working on it. I'm trying to figure it out. Like, I do things. Like, I come to... This is exactly what this uh, Olaquy says. What? You know, when, when the girls come, they are around your age. She says you don't have time to waste. You don't have two more years, three more years. You don't, uh, it's not time to play around. But I'm not, I don't even know what people mean by playing around. I'm like, I'm living my when, life when day to know, day. When you know this is a dead end situation, you should stop and turn around. Right, but I don't know if I'm in a dead end situation. Part of what makes it hard for me to know if I'm in a dead-end situation is having to keep it secret from you, if that makes sense. I learned to just keep my distance because I learned, especially with you, I can never get through to you. I never could get through to you. But what? tell even, me what it is you want to get through even a simple thing, 
that you wear something if I make a comment to you? You think I'm your enemy and I'm uh, overstepping my boundaries. You are my daughter. When I go out with you, I, I want you to be the best you could be. People judge you with what you wear. People judge you the way you look. I... Guess you think I, just... I say that because I hurt you? I say that because I love you. I want you to, the best life can offer for you. It's confusing for me because I just feel like, oh, it hurts my feelings when someone says my shirt is ugly or I should put something else on or no, I, I should say... get my warts removed. That hurts my feelings. Why? Why it hurts your feelings? Well, first of all, I just, I just, I'm like, I'm a little bit bothered by the value system why do looks matter so much but second of all but let me just say Uh, second of all it feels like as a woman and especially a persian woman i have had to work so hard to feel beautiful all the women in our in this community and and even just like women today are taught to feel so ugly and i have fought that like i wouldn't feel self-conscious on this boat which i feel extremely self-conscious if i didn't know that you didn't that you felt you're the one who feels self-conscious about how i look and that's really hard i don't know how i can get through to you maybe when you are 60 years old you will get it the first time anybody sees you and judge you is by your appearance. Mom, I care about how I look and I'm materialistic. I just belong to a different subculture. That's all. I still care about how I look. I mean, I am a feminist, so I do get upset when women try really... Okay, feminists don't wash their clothes regularly? I wash my clothes. I wash my clothes all the time. I'm sorry that I'm so... But, Mom, uh, okay, if I feel you like... you asked for it, I'm saying. I guess I'm just... Dis- I'm disappointed that this is... This is where the substance of our relationship is for you. Because I'm trying to talk to you about, like, the person I love in my life, my future, like, marriage, wanting to bring you in more deeply into my life, and you're still talking about my clothes. No, everything is entwined together, Sharon. I, I stand in my position, and uh, if something hurts me, I don't want to... This is something I learned the last uh, couple of years. I'm not going to deal with it. But what about me? Like, I guess it's up to me, and it's not for you to say. If I want to just honestly tell you, like, where I was last night, I can do that. Because that's my... You asked me where I was. I'm not required by law to lie to you to make you feel better. I'm not going to ask you. But don't you want to be close? No, if it bothers me, no. At this point, honestly, no. So you... Okay. I guess I just have to accept that. You would rather not be close and not know. When when, when we close, Shadow? I mean, sometimes I feel very close to you. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll stop. Anyway, at the end of the day, you are my daughter. I always love you. I always uh, care for you. Vali, uh, 
uh, I can't accept everything. And you prefer for me not to share it? I, and at this point, no. I, I don't want to share anything. I don't. But you acknowledge, can, can you, have you heard me that I want to be, I wish that I could share everything with you? Yeah. yeah. I guess that's the best we can do. Yeah. Can I hug you? Of course you can hug me. I don't, I want to be close to you. I don't yeah, I know. But then you can never be close to me. I can't. No, you can't. You can't. That was basically it. It felt really bad. But we kept sitting in the room together, and she started to get dressed. It was getting dark outside, and she went to the window. She was like, look, look, come see. And I remembered this thing she always used to do when I was a kid. When I would cry, she would find a moment, as the tears were subsiding, where she'd find a bird out the window and tell me to come look at the bird, to try to sort of distract me. Like, we're two humans. Let's just marvel at nature. Now it's uh, nice, but in a couple of hours when they move away from the shore, it's going to be just blackness. And we cannot see the stars tonight. Why? Because there is clouds. Oh. What time is it? Six o'clock that it's moving? Yeah, we can go have dinner. We ate dinner that night and then went to see an Iranian folk concert in the Paris Lounge. People were dressed to the nines, wearing sparkly silver dresses with their hair straightened and pounds of eye makeup. A bunch of people were wearing those high-heeled Louboutin shoes with the red soles, the ones that cost $700, but you can get them online for $45 if they're knockoffs. Sitting next to my mom at the concert, I thought about what a colossal misfire our whole conversation had been. My goal had been to tell her specific details about my life, but I never even got to say any of the things I wanted to say. I didn't get to tell her my boyfriend's name or how long we'd been together. I only got as far as telling her that if she'd let me, I would tell her some things. For years, I had been blaming myself for not having the courage to tell her about my life. And now I could see that she didn't want to know, and that I couldn't force her. When the ship landed back at shore, I called Dr. Holloquy's office, and they said they'd let me do a 10-minute interview with him. I decided to bring my mom along, just to give her the chance to be in a room with him and ask him whatever she wanted. We arrived at the radio station and were greeted by Halakwi's son, Farid. Uh, very you. nice to meet you. Nice to Who's meet you. also a psychologist. So we're going to go to the second floor. And this is where, so that's the radio station, third floor. Second floor, we have kind of therapy offices and my office is there, also where I see clients. So. Then we all walked into Halakwi's office. Hi, Dr. Halakwi. Hello, hello. How about uh, this lady? This is my mom, Nahid. Oh, my God. <laughs> The The thing I really wanted was for him to have some kind of a moment with my mom, but I was so nervous that I botched it. By the time he got through listing his credentials, the interview was practically over. I have master's degree in economics, master's degree in psychology, master's degree in marriage, family, child counseling, PhD in sociology. 29,000 people came 
and talked to me during the last 17 years. I turned to my mom and said, do you have anything to ask him? This was her moment, the chance to ask Halakwi anything. And she was like, I mean, you are wonderful. You, you changed my life. I just, uh, two years ago, I was looking through internet. I came across your name. And since then, maybe four or five hours, I listened to you. Then compliments started hurtling across the room. My mom to Halakwi. I love it. I love all the programs. Halakwi to all me. Nice person Thank and intelligent. You. you can see it and, you know, responsible. Halakwi to my mom. You are wonderful, just like your Thank daughter. Thank you. She's a writer. She's and then my mother complimented me. You were saying that your son is an exceptional writer. She's also one yeah. of those. For a minute, I was five years old again. My mommy said that I was a good writer. And that felt fucking good. Then our time was really up. He had to go back upstairs, and we just left. My mom and I walked out of Holoquy's building onto Westwood Boulevard, a strip of all Persian-owned businesses and stores, like a little Tehran. We dipped into a Persian restaurant, and while we were having lunch, my mom was like, I finally know what I should have asked him. I should have asked him, are appearances actually important? I tried to convince her to go back and actually ask him that, but she was too shy. We finished lunch, and then my mom and I walked further up Westwood Boulevard and got Manny Petties. In Gestalt therapy, there is this notion of the open Gestalt. An open Gestalt is essentially an unresolved problem. In my sessions with Glenn, we used to put a pillow on an empty chair, and I would pretend that the pillow was my mother. I would tell my pillow mother everything I couldn't say to my real mother, Nahid. The idea was that by saying everything, I'd be closing the Gestalt, resolving the unresolved. My mother never wanted to participate in this radio story, but she let me record her anyway because she knew it would make me happy. And in doing that, she's taken a little step toward accepting me for who I am. And I have gotten to say some of what I've wanted to say. So you're going to sit and listen to all this nonsense again? Absolutely, hundreds I'm so, of times. I'm so sorry. Why, Mom, do you know how special it is? At the end of this, I'm going to have a record of my relationship with my mother. What kind of a relationship is that? <laughs> Turn that thing off before I kill you. Men Khubem. I Am Good, was produced by Sharon Mashihi and commissioned by KCRW's Unfictional. It first appeared on the podcast The Heart. 
we are thrilled to announce that out of 550 entries submitted to the 2018 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition, this story recently won the Best Documentary Silver Award. Here's Sharon accepting her award just last weekend here in Chicago. Okay, then thank you. I want to thank the Third Coast Radio Residency so, so much. I'll just admit that I feel like I'm a loser a lot of the time, and like you don't, no one needs to tell me later that I'm not a loser. I just happen, like, I feel that way a lot of the time, and I feel not, not legit a lot of the time. And like, third, the Third Coast Radio Residency was a real feeling of legit, and I, I loved it. I loved getting to go, I loved getting to be with the people there. Thank you to Nishat and to Sarah for your guidance and for like the whole crew. I love all of you. Hi, Adisa. <laughs> um, thank you. Thanks. Both of today's stories were produced by Third Coast Radio Residents. We'll be accepting applications for the 2019 residency soon, so sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on deadlines and events. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org. There you can also find the other winners and their acceptance speeches from our 2018 competition, four of whom were radio residents. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.